abandonment, letting a knowledge or technology go, is a kind of filter. Might not be a good filter, but sometimes it might be a necessary filter. Rediscovery then, which is also selective, is another filter. So things are getting filtered now twice. Uh, we find the future, our own future, future of everyone. Sometimes we find it in the past. Rather than looking at the here and now and looking forward, we should maybe turn around and see what happened before that we missed. Uh, so to go forwards, sometimes we first have to go back. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. All right, good evening. It's great to see you all here. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. As many of you know, uh, before these talks, we usually do uh, what's called a long short, a short film that somehow exemplifies long-term thinking or is on the theme of, of the night's talk. And tonight's uh, long short was actually chosen by our very own Stuart Brand. Uh, and uh, it has both uh, David Byrne as well as our founding board member, Brian Eno. Enjoy.
I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now Foundation. <laughs> that uh, song was basically co-written by uh, Brian Eno and, and David Byrne. And uh, Brian is, that's the local ankle, is the, one of the founding board members and still present board members of the Long Now Foundation. So for one fine evening, please welcome David Byrne. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, this is kind of two things mashed together, but I, th I think it's going to work. Oh, <laughs> oh that, that thing. Um, so uh, a few years ago, um, probably like a lot of us, I would wake up in the morning and read the newspaper and become very agitated and depressed and angry. Um, and I decided to try kind of self-therapy, which was when I found something that made me feel a little hopeful, I would file it away in a little folder. And after a couple of years, I found that there was quite a number of things there. And I started calling them reasons to be cheerful. And it gave me, and I, they got to be uh, a little more organized. I realized that, uh, 
I mean, sometimes I'd put things in there like, I went out and heard some music and it was really great and it made me feel great. That, uh, I thought, is not, uh, not something that's going to help anyone else really that much. So <laughs> I started being, uh, editing things a little bit more uh, and I collected a lot of them and posted them when I could. Uh, recently I realized I wanted to take it a little more seriously, so basically we have shut down what, what it, me posting stuff and I've hired some writers and editors and designers and this and that. We're going to uh, try and relaunch in August and do it a little more seriously and more, reg and, uh, more regularly. Uh, but I'll give an example of some of these things and then I'll segue into the second part. So this is one that hasn't been posted yet. This is uh, about homelessness and this man is uh, Elijah Stevens, and he's in the conservatory, music conservatory. He's doing quite well. He used to be homeless. Um, this man is Pat Lawson. He's, uh, well, obviously a bus driver, and he used to be homeless. This man is Amos uh, Niate. He uh, is a, heads a construction crew in New Zealand, and he used to be homeless. Um, this is the work of a woman named Carla Dickens in Australia, and she used to be homeless. Um, so that's just the beginning. So I, I'd read, started reading some things about uh, solutions for homelessness, and I found out that the one uh, thing that's being done seems to be having a lot of success, and that's something called Housing First. Housing First is, well, exactly what it says. Um, it says that you give people who are homeless, you give them a home. And then, <laughs> by, by definition, they are no longer homeless. <laughs> okay. It doesn't end there, of course. Uh, as a woman in, uh, who works in New Orleans said, you, you have to accept them as they are. If, if they're, they're an addict, if their life is a mess, if they're drunk, sober, whatever, you take them as they are, put them in a place, and then, as she says, you wrap the services around them. You give them access to everything. So, in this, uh, in home, Housing First thing, you don't expect them to fix their life and then you reward them with a home. First, you give them the home, and then that allows them to fix their life. Okay, so. Uh, it's proved to be pretty successful. Nine cities uh, in the U.S., including Nashville, have used this approach, and it has ended uh, homelessness for veterans. Um, three communities, including, including Bergen County, New Jersey, which I didn't know had a homeless problem, but they do. Uh, they have ended chronic homelessness completely, which is kind of surprising. Okay, uh, Atlanta. Homelessness is down 29%. New Orleans, down 90%. Finland is the only European country that has where homelessness is declining, and they do, this is what they do. Um, okay, Utah is down 91% when they instituted this policy, this program, and then they decided to stop funding it, and it went back up again. Um, Okay, 
So that all seems really good, but there's a little bit more. The, there are economic benefits uh, for this program. Um, because homeless people are in and out of shelters, they're in and out of hospitals, they're in and out of police and jails, and there's addiction centers, and there's all kinds of other things going on. Uh, once they have a home and they start to kind of get things together, then th all those expenses that the cities and other places have start to go away. Uh, Regina in Canada saved 2.2 million when they instituted this. Finland is saving 18, uh, 18 and a half thousand per person per year using this program. And it was calculated that Los Angeles would save 33 million a year. Okay, so that is a kind of economic argument. You may think, or some people may think, that uh, homeless people are just fuck-ups and they don't deserve to be just given a home. But no matter what your moral point of view is, whether they deserve it or not, it's, uh, it makes business sense. It makes good economical sense to do this for all of us. So this one, for example, this Housing First, seems to help us as much as it helps them. It helps the society as a whole, it saves us money, so it's hopefully being expanded. This um, kind of, the economic effect of this program reminded me of another one, which was, is kind of, in a certain way, related, that there's a knock-on effect uh, of something that in some ways that you wouldn't expect. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, oh, I can do this. University of Pennsylvania did a study a few years ago of cultural institutions in New York City in the various boroughs. They looked at institutions like libraries and little dance centers and music things and all this kind of stuff. And they were looking mainly in middle and lower class uh, neighborhoods. They weren't looking at Lincoln Center or the Museum, Museum of Modern Art or the Whitney or any of those kind of places. They were looking at and they wanted to see what effects those places had on the neighborhoods besides just being like, oh, it's a library, you can go get books. They found out that uh, in those neighborhoods, the test scores of the kids went up 18%. Child abuse went down 14%, it's all in this thing. Crime went down 18% and obesity went down 5%. Now, to me, that all makes sense, but I think to a lot of people, they would find that rather surprising that the crime rate is affected by libraries. Um, but it is, and to me, that's great news. Okay, now I'm gonna jump to one that's maybe a little more <laughs> surprising, and probably the verdict's out a little bit, but it's a, it's a great story. Um, these are people in a town called Cheran and Michoacan in, in Mexico. Uh, they're mainly, the community, the little town, is mainly indigenous people, and they have made their living off the forest that surrounds them, it's a kind of commons. Uh, for years, uh, but in recent years, um, illegal loggers were coming into the forest, and along with that, uh, there were cartels and everything else. There were kidnappings and the things that come along with the cartels. The illegal loggers were taking half of the wood from the forest. Uh, so the townspeople were 
feeling kind of helpless. They went to the local, their local elected representatives in the town and said, can you stop this? Can you do this? And they said, there's nothing. They were all in cahoots. They were all connected. And they said, no, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, so the people in the town decided to take a radical step. The women in the town, it's the women who decided to <laughs> take, the, take the step. The women uh, early in the morning before sun, sunrise blockaded all the roads that lead to the town in the forest and they blocked these loggers coming in. Um, how they didn't get killed, they didn't, but the entire town then turned out to support them. Uh, so they, they began by stopping the loggers coming in. Then they kicked out all the politicians. They kicked out. <laughs> they banned political parties. Uh, their statement was that political parties make people hate one another. They put people against one another, so we got rid of them. Um, <laughs> the, of course, they got rid of the police as well. So, well, things don't run themselves. Uh, so, yeah, the women had to train themselves how to, how to use guns. Uh, and they, they formed a, uh, some organizations. Campfire meetings were started to say, well, how, we need organizations to run the town. We need to just, they had an elected, they eventually had an elected council that were selected at these fogatas, these uh, campfires. Uh, and so far, it's doing pretty well. Uh, as they did before, the land, the forest that they, where their springs are that they live off of and the wood and everything else is shared in common. Nobody owns any of it. They all share it. Uh, they have a community police force, which is, as you see in the picture, uh, crime, kidnappings, all those things, which used to be among the highest in Mexico. Michoacan is, uh, has a high crime state. Uh, it really it dropped incredibly. There's hardly any crimes. People feel safe. Women can drop, walk around the streets at night and they feel safe. Uh, so it's, well, it sounds kind of ideal, it's not perfect, and it's kind of unique because it's an indigenous uh, tribe, an indigenous group that lives there. It's not like a, a city like here where people from outside are coming in and the population is changing all the time. The population is kind of set. They feel like this is their town. They have lived there, their parents, their grandparents, everybody has lived there. Uh, there's a sense of unity that allows, that helps them work together uh, on all this. That is, that's a hard thing to, to achieve. Um, but what's interesting is that so far they've managed to do it. A few other uh, mainly indigenous communities in Mexico have been following their lead. So be curious to see what happens. So that, I wondered about all these ideas. Um, and I stumbled upon another idea and I thought, what if somebody did something wonderful? There was a great idea that uh, what people were putting into effect 
uh, a technology that people were using, and then for some weird reason, it got forgotten. And then everybody thought, oh, once things are forgotten, you don't know they're forgotten because they're not in your head anymore. Um, and I stumbled upon a paper by a scientific paper called uh, Sleeping Beauties. Um, <laughs> if we're, uh, how do we find them? Um, how can we locate them? What are, what are the qualities of it? It was a scientific paper about uh, what they called Sleeping Beauties. And it was mainly referring to science. And they defined them by, as scientific papers that um, got very few citations when they came out, and then many years later, 20, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, suddenly they'd be rediscovered and there was this explosion of citations, an explosion of interest in this idea. So it was an idea that kind of lay dormant and then suddenly was rediscovered. Of course, I applied it, I thought of it as, oh yes, it's like those you know, record albums that we all know about, and we go, uh, this is the greatest record ever, why does nobody know about it? Uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so, but it, it calls into question a lot of things. You start to wonder, um, how often does this happen? And well, the answer is it happens fairly, fairly regularly. And uh, they're not exceptional. This is what they discovered in the paper. Um, they discovered that basing uh, the value of a technology, a paper, a discovery, or whatever, on short-term citations, a number of short-term citations, is a kind of biased way of looking at it because longer term, and here we are, long now, longer term, something may not get very many citations, and then suddenly it gets discovered, and it has a huge number of citations, and has an inordinate influence on science and whatever else from, from that point. Uh, sometimes the influence of these sleeping beauties, once they wake up, is, is greater than the things that got lots of citations when they were first published. And lastly, they pointed out that they are discovered often by outsiders. They're often discovered by people outside the field in which the paper was published, which is, in a way, not a surprise. Uh, people within the field are, tend to think in prescribed ways, and they may not notice something that is proposing a paradigm or something that's outside of their wearing think, thinking. So I started thinking about this a little bit more, and I realized that uh, we know about the known unknowns. I'm going to talk like Donald Rumsfeld here for a while, <laughs> a minute here. The known unknowns, for example, are the, uh, the Mayan codexes. There were thousands of Mayan codexes, and now there are three. So we know that they're missing. Uh, we know that there are two Shakespeare plays that are missing, Love's Labors One and uh, Cardenio. We know that 20 books of the uh, Old Testament are missing, uh, 
and we know that some of the books of the New Testament are missing, including the Gospel of Eve. Yes, what would that have been? <laughs> we all want to know. <laughs> uh, this was in the news uh, fairly recently. This is El Libro de los Epitimes. This is, um, I, okay, I just have to, there was an article about it recently, and there, there's a book about the guy who made this book, who is Hernando uh, Colon, Columbus's illegitimate son. He had two illegitimate sons. And this one, uh, Hernando, decided, kind of after his father's death, um, that he would attempt to collect every book in the world, kind of the Library of Alexandria, but even more. He wasn't just going to collect the great works of literature and science. He was going to collect those, but also every almanac, every newspaper, every printed material, bit of printed material he could lay his hands on. Basically, he wanted to have the internet in physical form. Uh, and I'm not sure where he was going to have it in Sevilla or someplace. Uh, he was very good at categorizing things. Of course, if you have that many books, he had uh, at least 11,000, possibly 20,000. Oh, no, he had about, oh my gosh, at least 20,000 books, uh, it's estimated. Um, 11,000 of those are missing, but we know they're missing. Uh, and only recently was this book discovered. This is the Libro de los Epitomites, which is the kind of the card catalog, um, in a way, the key to the other books. He hired, he hired other people to read through all the other books and make little summaries of them all. And this is, this is what this is. This was lost for mm, how many years? How many years do we know? Uh, well, it was, this book was found in 2013 in uh, Copenhagen, and, and it was uh, 1500 or so when he started his library collection. So, eh, you know, 5, 500 years or so. Um, so now this book tells us what's missing. Uh, we, can't, we don't know where they were, but that. Uh, his categories that he had for the books were maybe not the Dewey Decimal System. Uh, one section was called the, um, the Library of Shipwrecked Books because those books were lost in shipwrecks. So <laughs> they were a category, but they didn't actually exist. <laughs> okay, moving on. This is uh, Democritus, De Democritus. Uh, this is the atom. Of course, he proposed, I'm going to go in chronological order, more or less. He proposed this in, uh, so now we're in real Sleeping Beauties. That was kind of things that we know were lost. These are things that were known, talked about, discussed, and then kind of forgotten. Uh, the Adam, 400 BC, 22 centuries before it got accepted. <laughs> uh, it was a man named John Dalton in 1808 who reproposed the idea that the basic unit is something called an atom. He used the same word. Um, okay, I can't resist this. The, the reason um, 
the idea of the atom, more or less as we knew it, although he, he thought of it more as a philosophical, as a thought experiment. He couldn't prove that they existed. So it's like Einstein's thought experiments. He said, this is what it has to be, but I can't prove it. Um, anyway, uh, the reason why that was pushed aside was because of Aristotle, um, who uh, his idea was elements, not atoms, earth, air, fire, water. And he was considered such a learned and great man that everybody accepted that for centuries and centuries. Okay, next, um, and then of course now we think of atoms as, well, yeah, uh, concrete. <laughs> concrete, about 200 BC, concrete, <laughs> uh, was used by the Romans. Uh, this is the... Uh, Pantheon, yes, Pantheon, uh, in Rome. Um, it's still, to this day, the largest un, you know, unsupported, unfortunate, no kind of rebar in there, uh, concrete dome in the world. Kind of amazing. Um, they had a formula for concrete that used ash from a particular volcano uh, that was mixed in. Uh, the formula was kind of lost. Uh, it was kind of rediscovered, oh, how many years ago? Uh, 45. 45 years ago now? <laughs> Could be. Uh, it was rediscovered fairly recently, many centuries later. Uh, the concrete that we use now is, I think, stronger, but not as long-lasting as the Roman concrete. Uh, so we've never, we haven't kind of got it back completely. But, so for centuries, concrete was just not used at all. This is the Antikythera device, which was discovered in a shipwreck. Uh, it's estimated that it was made about, in about, 100 BC, it was a device with 37 gear wheels that uh, could predict the movements of the planets, of the moon, of the sun, predict eclipses, etc., etc. Here's a kind of computer rendering of the same thing. Um, here is kind of a slice of all the different gears. Um, that technology disappeared. And it wasn't until the 1300s that the mechanical technology could duplicate what that machine did. Kind of hard to believe, but yes, these kind of things get forgotten. This is kind of a fun one. It's the, uh, the steam engine. Uh, we tend to give it to James Watt, but it was a guy named Heron of Alexandria in about 40 AD. Uh, <laughs> he's also known as Hero, depending on where you come from. Uh, so he made one like this, where the steam, he made a few different versions. Uh, he made one like this, where the steam is heated on, and basically it just, the ball turns and the steam comes out the things. Okay, uh, nice. But then he made one uh, at a temple 
where a similar kind of mechanism exists uh, underneath the temple, and when it turns, it's attached to ropes, and the ropes magically open the door to the temple. So now the steam engine is actually doing work. Uh, then, okay, he did other things as well. He made the first vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> you'd put a coin in, uh, you'd put a coin in, I think it might have been in the top, uh, and it dispensed holy water. <laughs> okay, he also made a wind, the first wind-driven machine, uh, which, of course, played a musical instrument, and played an organ. Okay, so, someone uh, on the internet, of course, said, well, they had all the technology, they could have had trains or cars run by this steam engine at that point, but they didn't, which is another that's probably another story. Why do some things get to a certain point and then they just, you realize, just one, one more step and you'd have, you could be you know, moving stones and temples and everything around with these kind of vehicles, but they didn't. Okay, so I'll come back to James Watt and the rest of it later. There was uh, accurate clocks. Accurate clocks, uh, this is a clock from the, Wow, who was it? King of Persia. He gave it, he, he gave it as a gift to uh, Constantine in eight, 807. Uh, nobody had seen anything like it. Um, it was, again, a very complicated mechanism. It didn't have hands like we know. Instead, it had little doors that opened uh, each hour. A door opened and little balls came out. So the ball, and the balls dropped down and hit a little like a little gong. So not only could you tell what time it is by looking at seeing how many doors were open, but it would announce itself with these little gongs. Uh, in uh, 1770, uh, European technology was kind of catching up to the Persians by that point, and Voltaire saw this device and wondered, how could they have known how to do this? It was kind of, it's hard to imagine sometimes that other people, the other, people who seem foreign and distant and strange could have sec developed a technology that has been beyond us for centuries, but they did. There's another little diagram. One might say that, uh, okay, here's another one. Oh, well, I'm gonna skip this. Binary numbers, uh, that's kind of in dispute who, in, who actually came up with binary numbers. So we're gonna do that, but here's the, uh, Oh yes, there's a steam. <laughs> I'm going to go to the steam engine part two. Okay, so it's generally credited to James Watt, but uh, not quite. Uh, a guy named Jane, uh, Thomas uh, Saver, Savery in 1698 uh, worked with uh, Thomas Newcomen, and in 1712 they came up with this kind of steam engine that had basically no moving parts, just the valves going up and down. Um, Watt, James Watt, who was kind of given the credit often for the steam engine, was aware of this, saw this, and refined it. Uh, and he developed his in 1775. Of course, we remember that it was at 40 AD when the first one was uh, 
very similar to this one, uh, was invented. And then many, many, many centuries later, it kind of, things get picked up again. Watt, it turns out, was quite the monopolist. Once he got his uh, IP, his patent, for his steam engine, he crushed all competition. Um, people invented steam engines that were better than Watt's steam engine, but he crushed them. Okay. <laughs> this is, a, this is uh, antiseptics. Um, okay. This is a good story. Ignaz uh, Semmelweis, uh, 1847, he worked in a maternity hospital in Vienna. Uh, there were two, two wards. One was run by men and one was run by midwives. Uh, the women in the ward run by men tended to get sick a lot. Um, there was, I think, what's called childbed fever or something, and they would die. Um, not all of them, but in alarming numbers. The ones being tended by the midwives didn't die anywhere near as much. He couldn't figure out why this was. Uh, there were priests that came through ringing bells, and he thought that was making everybody very anxious, so he said, stop doing that. Uh, it didn't make any difference. Uh, he, <laughs> he uh, there was another, oh gosh, it'll, it'll occur to me, he tried something else. Um, oh yes, the midwives tended to have the women give birth on their sides, so he said, everybody do that, and that didn't make a difference either. Then he noticed that the male doctors were also performing uh, the autopsies on the women uh, who passed away. Uh, and then they'd go back and kind of deliver more babies. And he th thought they might be on their fingers carrying what he called cadaverous particles. Um, germs, the idea of uh, germs had not come into being yet. He wanted to kill these cadaverous particles, so he developed uh, a kind of carbolic, uh, no, it's his was a kind of chlorine wash. That's him washing his hands with chlorine. And it worked. It worked. Um, but he was... The doctors didn't like the idea that the, they were being... It was inferred that they were dirty, the doctors. They didn't like this. Doctors at that point used to wear smocks that were splattered with blood like butchers. And they were, these were badges of honor. Because it showed, like, this is what I do. Uh, they reverted to the old practice and stopped washing, and the deaths went back up. Um, Semmelweis uh, eventually goes mad, and he dies of sepsis, an infection that could have been stopped by someone washing their hands. Okay, so then it goes to Okay, things that are a little bit more well-known. Uh, Pasteur does his paper in 1867. That's about 20 years later, uh, the germ, germ theory. And uh, Joseph Lister in Scotland, in, in Glasgow, uh, 
thinks this might be something to try. So he makes a spray, a spray device uh, that sprays carbolic acid over the patient, over the big open wound during surgery, and it works. It works. Uh, it lowers the deaths considerably. He was also mocked uh, at scientific gatherings. The British um, medical publication, The Lancet, okay, in, uh, let's see, about five or six years later, uh, officially warned doctors from following Pasteur, or Lister's uh, spray things. And so it fell out of favor, but some people believed in it. In uh, 1902, this is about 30 years later, uh, Lister has retired. The King of England, uh, Edward VII, has an appendicitis. Uh, he has to have surgery, and there's a very strong risk that he will die. The doctor who's going to operate on him believes what Lister has done. He gets in touch with them, and Lister instructs him step by step, this is what you do. He does it, the king lives, and that's kind of, that, the word gets out. This technique saved the kings. This is 1902 now. Okay, now we're moving on to, this is, oh, I skipped something. I skipped uh, genetics. That's, <laughs> that's okay. There's lots of, there's lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> Gregor Mendel, of course, um, came out with his, his idea of, well, he didn't call them genes, but he knew there was something in there that was changing plants. And uh, this was 1866. Um, and, uh, it was not accepted for about 34 years. And the reason it wasn't accepted, at least in some things that I've read, was really interesting. Darwin. Darwin gets the blame for genetics not being accepted. Uh, Darwin's theory came out just before this, um, and Darwin's idea that evolution, change, happens really, really slowly, incrementally, in tiny, tiny steps. Mendel, of course, said, no, you put the right genes there, and this one that used to be uh, you know, a red pea comes out as a white pea. You know, just like that. It changes from this to this. It, and Mendel was also saying, it's the same species. It hasn't changed. Because one is red and one is white or whatever, that doesn't mean it's a different species. And everybody was enthralled to Darwin at the time. So for about 34 years, uh, that was not not accepted. And then uh, gradually, a group of scientists repeated Mendel's experiments and said, no. He's right. Um, dark matter. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> dark matter was proposed by uh, Lord Kelvin in 1902. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in 1933, Fritz Zwicky uh, began to see a con. Of course, no one, but no one believed him. Uh, Kelvin. Uh, in 33, Zwicky said, I'm starting to see a conflict between 
of course, galactic motion, the motions of the, of the stars, and what we think the gravity should be. There's something missing. Uh, he said, I think he might have been right. The idea was resisted until the 60s, and now, of course, we all realize that only 4% of the universe is visible to us. The rest of it is dark matter and dark energy. Uh, Einstein, it's a really famous one, Einstein's uh, paper on quantum was done in 1935 and ignored more or less for 60 years. Um, he, he said, uh, the paper was, did I write it down? No. Nah. The paper was about, he doubted that quantum theory was a complete description. And uh, in 1994, it was kind of resurrected, taken seriously. Uh, okay, well, I'm gonna skip some things. Asperger, okay. He was, yeah, oh, all right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sad. Okay, Asperger is pretty well known now. Um, he called his charges the little professors. And he believed that these kids with extraordinary abilities were, were in various ways of benefit to society. Hitler killed them all. Uh, but the idea now has kind of begun to be resurrected. This is her, on the picture is Hermann Minsky. 1974, he proposed an economic theory that said that stability begets crashes. That when things are going well, the banks start to lend because everything's going better and better and people are gonna be able to pay it back. I could go on and on, but that's, you get the idea. Things get more and more precarious, the better they are. Inevitably, it crashes. Nobody wanted to hear this. It, it, you know, standard economic theory, this is just like, no, 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 no. When things are going wrong, they're, well, they're doing well. So, of course, 2007, everybody starts to go, wasn't there that guy? that kind of was talking about this and why this happened? Yes. Okay, so now I'm gonna quickly go uh, into the arts a little bit. Um, this is Bruegel, a painting by Bruegel. <laughs> um, Bruegel was very popular, quite popular when he began to paint. Um, and then at some point, he was considered a peasant. He, wasn't, he didn't go to an academy. Uh, and he painted, uh, excuse me, peasant rituals. Um, he was considered a primitive. Uh, I think it was the king of uh, Habs the Habsburg Empire, somebody, collected basically all his work. Um, loved him at the time. Basically then put him out of circulation, the work out of circulation. Uh, inferior copies began to circulate. Um, tastes changed, uh, and he became, for quite a few centuries, uh, considered not very interesting. The uh, 
the emperor began to sell off the pictures and now they're scattered all over the place in museums everywhere. But it wasn't until the early 20th century um, that people began to look at his work and see a connection with modernism. They saw that Bruegel was painting the, wor the world of, the or of ordinary people and somehow this connected with a, seemed like a very modern idea. And so he was kind of resurrected. This is, uh, some people will know who this is. This is Hilma of Klint. Um, she was a painter in Sweden. She was a mediumistic painter. She would go into you know, seances. And she's 1906. She painted a lot of big abstract paintings. Uh, she was considered the first abstract artist. There's a lot of debate about this, but mm, kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, she was ahead of Mondrian, ahead of Kandinsky, uh, yes, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, she, uh, there are aspersions cast on her, partly one might say maybe because she's a woman, maybe. Uh, maybe because she claimed that it was spirits who were guiding her work, and they were, so they're the, uh, Critics would say, well, see, it's, it's not really her. <laughs> so, when it's about 19, so, uh, oh, some things happened in her life, some unfortunate things. She adored the work and the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. Um, Steiner came to see her in Stockholm and looked at her work and, and disapproved of it. Um, she, she had been showing some of this work, not these giant ones, but she'd been showing some. So that and the kind of lack of understanding and, uh, of the work that she was doing, she decided she was, that, that her time was wrong. She decided to hide it away. And she, in her will, she said, don't open this until 20 years after I'm dead. So she became the agency that put herself, her own work, to sleep. Her nephew was in charge of executing her will, which he did. He opened it, uh, might have been in, uh, whatever, in the 70s, I think, 1970s, maybe. Uh, and he began to try and have it be seen by, uh, more widely. He offered the entire collection of, uh, I think it was 1,200 paintings to the Modern Museum in Stockholm, and they turned it down. Um, eventually, uh, it's been accepted. Uh, there's been a big show at the Guggenheim. I saw it at a show in Sao Paulo. The show that's pictured here is at the Modern Museum in Stockholm. Um, music. This is Frank Johnson. Uh, it was a p recent piece, I think it was in the New Yorker about him. Uh, or maybe it was another publication anyway. Um, he was uh, incredibly popular. Um, he led what would be called a string band. Um, there, were, there was such a thing as Afro-American string bands. They were incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular uh, artists in the country. Um, when he passed away um, in Wilmington, Delaware, it was the largest funeral that Wilmington had ever seen. And then, around the turn of the century, turn of 20th century, um, 
the idea of Afro-American string bands begins to kind of be pushed aside and there's a shift in taste and or a shift in attribution. Uh, string bands are something that white people do. So this, his music uh, began, became basically unknown. Uh, string band music, fiddles and reels and all, all this, uh, began to be considered white person, white people's music. Uh, there was a bit of white supremacy in this kind of attribution, but that's what happened. And then many years later, uh, there were groups, not that long ago, 10 years ago maybe, like the Carolina Chocolate Drops, I think there's a picture of them later on, who started reviving his, his work. This is uh, a Brazilian group that uh, I championed and other people as well, Beck and Kurt Cobain and others love this group, the, the Os Mutantes. Um, they made incredible records like in 1969 so, and then they kind, of, they kind of disappeared. The records went out of print. Uh, people in Brazil would tell me about this amazing group and how inventive they were. But of course you could not get the records anywhere. And then, yes, maybe 25 years or so after that, there was reissues in Japan and I, my little label did an issue of some of their things and it became fun. So, uh, these things come back to life. The Velvet Underground, as Brian Eno said, uh, they only sold a handful of records, but everybody who bought a record started a band. Which, <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of true. <laughs> um, which <laughs> goes back to the first thing, the kind of the citations and the scientific papers. Uh, if you consider record sales as like citations, they were very low, but they were very influential. And then as time goes by, there's more and more of them and, and the audience grows. So I start to ask myself, why? I've answered some of these questions, but why do these things go to sleep? Um, is it a jealous? Jealous mother-in-law, or whatever. Um, the, mo <laughs> the most uh, all-encompassing reason is context. Why things go to sleep because of context. There is the technical context, like with the um, the Greek thing with the gears. Um, we forget the technique. We forget the recipe for for concrete, or how to machine gears accurate enough to predict the movements of the planets. And then we rediscover the technology which allows us to rediscover these devices. Uh, there's an economic context. Uh, things are invented and ideas proposed, but nobody can figure out what the pra practical application might be. You go, well, what if this, how do we make money out of that? Or, what good is that going to be to anyone? Nobody can see what, it, what use it might be. It goes to sleep. Of course, there's uh, social biases, uh, whether that's racism or other kinds of things. Uh, and there's, uh, let's see, yes, intellectual context, ideas that hold sway, like the Darwin story of, uh, versus Gregor Mendel. Um, 
there's racism, nationalism, xenophobia, those can put things to sleep and, and, and make, have very strange ideas. One of my favorites is um, Darwin, of course, withheld his own book, Origin of the Species, partly because uh, part of the story is that uh, he suddenly published it because he realized uh, Wallace and others were gonna publish their versions and he had to get his out. But it was also because of his wife, who was a deeply religious woman, and he loved her very much, and he knew that his book would be, would be very, very disturbing to her, and it might break up their marriage. And so he withheld it um, for a you know, number of decades. Um, language, communication, things are, uh, the clock, mechanism in Persia that Europe seemed to be completely unaware of. Scale. Um, things like the concrete. Uh, the Roman concrete couldn't have been made without the, the whole mechanism of getting the ash from this one volcano, working with it in sufficient quantity, moving it from place to place. There's a whole kind of chain of things that has to be in place for this one thing to, to be made. And once, those, once pieces of that chain fall out, it can't be done anymore. The formula is forgotten. Okay. Why do they wake up? I ask myself. <laughs> well, I've answered some of those too. Uh, one of them is uh, people a paper uh, about some by, let's see, where we're, people look, oh my God, I wrote it in some sort of poetic <laughs> thing. It's, it says, look nearby, but it, which, is, which is true. People look as <laughs> something close to something else, and they go, oh, look at that. Um, another one is help from a friend. <laughs> help from a friend. So, for instance, uh, someone champions like a Hilma's nephew or others where someone is a champion of an idea. Someone doesn't drop the ball and goes with it. Um, someone, as I said, someone looks elsewhere. So. Rather than someone in one discipline, it's someone in another discipline who looks and goes, that's an incredible idea. I can maybe apply it to my own work, to my own kind of area of expertise. Um, and the, there's a, uh, a reputation gets reassessed. That's easy to understand. Oh, this is a, this is a fun one. Uh, weather. Um, I was reading about the Little Ice Age, uh, which took place in 1500 to like 1700, I think. Um, it devastated European agriculture. As a result, according to one writer, uh, the Europeans were forced to expand their point of view, expand where they, their trade, etc., because their own fields were, were failing. Uh, and by doing so, they came into contact 
with other ideas, other technologies, and other ways of thinking. And you can kind of give credit to the weather. Um, what else do I have in here? Uh, this is uh, Sleeping Beauty being woken up, but I'm sad to say if anyone's come across the real original folktale, he rapes her. Yeah, it's not a kiss. She has two children while she's still asleep. One of the children the thorn, you know, the, the splinter that put her to sleep. One of the children finds her breast. The other one can't find the other breast, starts sucking on the finger and sucks out the splinter and she wakes up. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> all this, I started to ask myself, what have I learned? <laughs> well, you know, I learned about <laughs> Lister and his problems and the, the card catalog of, of every bit of knowledge we possibly have. Uh, but it was, <laughs> okay, in a, in a more meta sense, uh, I realized that we think, I'm as guilty as, of this as anyone, we think that knowledge is an endless accumulation. That you just, you add to what came before, which we do, and it just, it never goes away. You keep adding more and more and more, and it builds up and it's all getting greater and greater. Obviously, not quite true. We think that these silly people from the 17th century or the medieval folks or whatever, they are just not as smart as we are. That that's why they forgot these things. That's why they lost the recipe for concrete. How could they lose it? Uh, they must have been, you know, idiots. Uh, so we think that we're wiser than people were in the past. Um, <laughs> We, I'm, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, these are the unknown unknowns. Uh, when something is forgotten, we're unaware that it exists. So we have no knowledge that, oh, we lost the recipe for concrete. Maybe we see this dome and we go, oh man, how did they do that? But we don't know, we don't, we don't know that what's missing. Because, because it's missing. Um, and I wrote down some little things. Abandonment, letting a knowledge or technology go, is a kind of filter. Might not be a good filter, but sometimes it might be a necessary filter. Rediscovery then, which is also selective, is another filter. So things are getting filtered now twice. Uh, we find the future, our own future, future of everyone. Sometimes we find it in the past. Rather than looking at the here and now and looking forward, we should maybe turn around 
and see what happened before that we missed. Uh, so to go forwards, sometimes we first have to go back. That's the end. <laughs> All right, I ran over a little bit, but I'm sorry. <laughs> That's great, let's sit. That, was, that is fun stuff. To it totally is fun, into. and it's way more of a long now talk than I really expected, <laughs> frankly. Um, and you know, some colleges are now dropping history from their curriculum. They are. They are making a mistake. And uh, there's a complaint among some engineers that the history of engineering is not taught. And that sounds like a, a, quite a mistake as well. Yeah, you would think not, not that you need to know all the details, but you need to know the process. And mm -hmm. A question from Rebecca. What is something that people are excited about now you think that might easily be forgotten? Now that you've seen a bunch of things that, I mean, some of them were, were obscure then, and they just didn't come out until later, but some, uh, like the Black String Band guy, were popular at the time, but then somehow got lost. And now, how old are you? Uh, I'm in my late 60s now. Okay. Uh, you've probably seen a few things that have gone through that cycle. They were popular. You know they're good. You know they're kind of long-term good, but they dropped away. Do you, any examples of that come to mind or a sense of how that works in, in modern times? How do these things get lost? My mind's going blank. Do you have, do you have anything? Is somebody going to yell something out? Maybe we'll get a question coming up. Yeah. Um, but it's something to bear in mind. You know, what is the process now? Because one of the things you were looking at is at various times the mechanisms of forgetting, the filter that was applied, was different at the time. And one of the things that occurs to me is now, maybe with social media, maybe with the fact that books don't go out of print anymore, um, that there's more stuff being looked at by more people with this kind of discerning eye, discerning ear if it's music, uh, that may give more of a chance for things to bubble back just because there's such a wide range of search going on. It was, used to be that just a few people could search. Mm -hmm. Now, in a sense, everybody can. So that may affect things. Search, but as you're saying, search is governed by algorithms. And the algorithms are the filter. Okay, what are your algorithms for search? <laughs> yeah. Um, what are my algorithms? Yeah, when you, I mean, you scan, you're a scholar of music, among other things. Uh, and you scan for these things, what, what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for what is it that you uniquely are noticing or, or what? what? How do you look? I don't think how, it's... How do you advise people to look? Uh, there's something that catches my attention or interest in the first place, mm -hmm. and that's the part I don't want completely understand, and then I tend to follow that down the rabbit hole. Ah. I'll follow links, or if there's a name that's mentioned, I'll go, okay, who is that? Mm -hmm. And then I'll... So you actually spend time online going oh, down rabbit holes? Oh, for God's sake, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. How, mu how much but, time? But it's, 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 
But then I end up with all these little stories, and I go, these are incredible uh -huh. stories. I'm going to tell my friends some mm -hmm. of this stuff. Um, it occurred to me one, one thing would be good to know is uh, at the beginning you were talking about the good ideas or the reasons to be cheerful. Is there an online version of all that that people can discover? Uh, not yet. We put it, we put it, hit, hit the pause button. Mm. It should be activated again in August. So there'll be a website of reasons yeah, website to be cheerful or whatever it's called? Yes. Yeah. Okay, as of August. And now, what would they search for? Um, it'll, that'll be it. Reasons to be cheerful and there'll mm. be all the, these kind of stories posted. Not the Sleeping Beauty stories, the other ones. <laughs> uh, posted, yeah, a couple of times a week. And then a sense I got is that you were looking, see if I got the criteria right, uh, you were looking for things that weren't just an idea, they were actually working in the world. They had to be actually working. And that they might, they didn't seem to be so unique to the situation of the creator where they occurred that they could be more widely applied in the world. Exactly. I didn't want something where it only applied to one culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and thought, well, that's great for them, but okay. So the starting with Homes for the Homeless, which is how you began your talk, uh, that has now been done several different places, it sounds like. And it's been successful pretty much everywhere. Um, but as, as you were asking about what things could be forgotten, look, Utah did it, it was successful, and then they defunded it, which is kind of like, are you, why would you do this? Well, politics, probably. Mm -hmm. um, uh, politics, maybe the, the whole idea of giving homes to people who, you know, people might morally think these people don't deserve homes. Mm -hmm. But it's, economically, it pays for itself. Well, may it spread, and I think you're going to help that. <laughs> Ray asked, what are some sleeping beauties from your own catalog of work? Your catalog of work is the broadest of any artist I know. <laughs> I mean, you have more books and music and plays and... Thank you. Uh, and, and some of that you know and, and people you respect know is pretty good, but it somehow got lost in the mix. Any of those you want to celebrate at this uh, particular we'll moment? We'll see. I mean, there's, there's things that didn't connect the way I maybe hoped they would. Uh, a number of years ago, I did a, a musical about Joan of Arc hmm. and got savaged by the New York press. And basically, that was, that was the end of it. But I thought, let me look at it and see if I... They might have had a few points, if maybe there's kind of... I hope not too many. <laughs> but let's see if there's any of that can be resurrected. So do you go back to work sometimes that you think have merit that you'd like to give another shot at the world? Yeah. Really? What are some of the ones you've done? That? That's one where uh -huh. I thought, I haven't done it yet, but I thought mm -hmm. there might be a way to rework that somehow and make it into something, but who knows? Mm -hmm. Then I'll find out if, it's, yeah, if it has mer merit or not. You're, the, I sort of know you through Brian Eno, because a friend and been associated with Long Now for a long time. And uh, your collaboration with him has been amazing in terms of the, the product. Um, but you're collaborative generally. You seem very comfortable working with other artists and, and out of the interplay getting some extra thing. Is, is that? Yes. Say more about how that works for you. 
Um, for me, when a collaboration works, and it, it, it can work fairly often, mm -hmm. pretty good percentage of times, you get something extra. You get something that neither of the collaborators would have done on their own, and, it, and both of them, or however many there are, realize, oh, this is greater than the sum of its parts, or it's a third thing that has come into existence that is neither of us, but mm -hmm. it's something, of, something else. Um, it doesn't always work. I mean, there's sometimes when it mm -hmm. just doesn't, but uh, when it does, that's really exciting. I've heard other musicians say kind of that they hate the idea of collaborations. Really? To some, it feels to them that it is watering down oh. the authenticity of the, of the author. It's a compromise of some sort. Which, which it is, you're inevitably compromising, but if you get something greater, they'll, to mm -hmm. me, that's worth it. Say a little more about Brian. You guys go back to the 70s, I guess? And yeah, late Both 70s. of your musicians came out of art schools, and then how did you intersect, and, and was My Life in the Bush of Ghosts the beginning of the collaboration, mm -hmm. or where did it, where did it go? Uh, it was before, before that record, uh, Brian worked with a couple of Talking Heads records. Right. We worked okay. at those before that record. Um, we met at a little club in in London when we first played there, huh. and uh, we and we became friends. We had interests in common mm. uh, outside of music, and mm. so we just had a correspondence and a friendship, and that seemed to be. So there was something more valuable about that, about working with someone with a kind of, uh, with a point of view mm -hmm. that was broader than just music that you mm -hmm. can share, mm -hmm. that that seemed to be something that we felt more comfortable with mm -hmm. than just someone who was a skilled musical technician. Interesting. So uh, this song that we saw at the beginning, One Fine Day, um, which I guess was part of an album that you did together, uh, I know the story on that. I think this group might be kind of interested how you guys collaborated on that song and that album. Um, it was that was an album for a few years ago, and uh, Brian had uh, musical tr tracks, music, but very, very little words and, and vocal melodies. Mm -hmm. And I said, let me, uh, let me have a go at some of these and see if I can write lyrics and, and a melody on top of it. And I sat with it for yeah, maybe a year before I, I, before I felt like, okay, I think I know what the approach mm -hmm. to this material is. And that was, that was the first song uh, that hmm. I came, came back to him with. He loved it. Un, unknown to me, I think he'd given the same track or something to the guys in Coldplay. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> um, but I think, generously, I think he played what I'd done to them, and, and they said, no, that's it. So the sense I got from him is basically you, you guys were not together in a studio. You did the whole thing by email. 
Yeah, the emails and uh, all that. Most of that. And then we'll get together every once in a while, but yeah. Which is actually probably pretty good for collaborators in some kinds of ways. Not to, oh, interesting. You can, you can, with exchanging things that way, you can sit on something and, and not, be, not have the pressure to react to what someone else has done mm -hmm. immediately. Because that might be the wrong reaction. It might take a minute to kind of think, oh, let me absorb what they've done uh -huh. and respond to it. Give it a little time to sink in because it's always a shock <laughs> because what they've done to your child. Right. It's always a shock. <laughs> and then you kind of go, I think I get this. I, and then you, yeah. So in that case, were you sort of coming up with lyrics and he was doing some music around it or vice versa? Yes, on that one, uh, the division of labor was very, pretty, pretty clear. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much, I was doing lyrics and some vocal melodies, some came from him, and then singing it. And then he had done pretty much all the instrumental music. Mm -hmm. Well, it very sure worked. Easy, a very clear division of labor on that one. I thought that made the collaborative process easier when you know when there when there's rules. Yay. <laughs> Bill Landers asks, um, "Were you able to bike ride today? Where did you go?" Yeah. This is a guy who wrote a book called The Bicycle Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us a little about bicycling. And, and, uh, Today I went, uh, I went downtown, but then went out by uh, Dog Patch and what's it called? India something? Yeah. Uh, and which is an area I wasn't familiar with. And I could see, oh, this is area is changing, but kind of slow, well, changing not as fast as some other areas, uh, kind of still remnants of old industry of San Francisco when it was a large port before Oakland mm -hmm. that took over that. You're very judgmental about various cities in terms of how good they are to bike in. Uh, <laughs> how, how does San Francisco rate in that? Well, other than the hills, San Francisco's <laughs> pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, there's bike lanes and they're there, you don't see too many cars parking in the bike lanes. It's, mm -hmm. all, it's, it's pretty good. Did you see the uh, play Arcadia by Tom Stoppard? No, I didn't. Worth doing, I just mentioned it because it is very much in line of basically complexity theory is invented by this young lady in the 1700s and then is forgotten in the world because she dies young and the, course of the play basically explains, don't worry, these things may be lost, but they're not lost. They always return. And it's probably Stoppard's best play. I bet you'd enjoy it. I'll check it out. Um, Angus McGrath asks, what is the common thread in overcoming one's zeitgeist? So I would suggest part of it is knowing the zeitgeist. You know, just among musicians, I'm shocked at the amount of knowledge of what other musicians are doing that musicians seem to have. And artists in general, and Brian's line is, art is about art. In the sense that artists are aware in their various domains of what has gone on and what is now going on in their little world, not so little. Um, and 
they're, they've got the zeitgeist down cold and they want to depart from that in some fashion. Is that describe yeah, how it yeah. works or something else entirely? No, and for me, I, I'm not sure, but for me, I feel like um, if I pay too much, too much attention, I love you know listening to music and other people, what, hearing what other people are doing, but I also feel like I'll get inspiration from this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. I'll read about mm -hmm. a story or whatever, and I'll see it as a kind of allegory or a metaphor or something. I go, now, can I take that and somehow apply it to, hmm. to music? Not mm -hmm. necessarily write a song about... Mm -hmm. Sleeping uh, beauties, right? Exactly. <laughs> but think about that process, and is there, a, can, is there a way to kind of mimic or draw inspiration from that process? What comes to mind as examples of that for you? Um, wow. Um, the, An idea that came from elsewhere that became Well, okay, I can think did. of one thing that some years ago um, I was rehearsing for a tour and I knew that I wanted to have some dancers on stage with me. And so we were auditioning dancers. Mm. And one of the choreographers uh, there were 50 dancers in the room. And one of the choreographers said, okay, here's what you do. There's like, I want you to all do something and, and there's a few rules. We're gonna play some music. Everybody move to it however you like. Find a phrase, by a phrase she meant, uh, you know, like four bars of the music. Find that and make your own movement, kind of movement that goes with that. If you find something you like, repeat it. Because that was the first rule. Hmm. The next rule was, uh, as you're doing that, you're kind of looping your movement. Uh, look around you, and if you see somebody else doing something better than what you're doing, switch over and do, and do what they're doing. Oh my God. And the third rule was, when everybody's doing exactly the same thing, it's over. It took four minutes for 50 people to, to, to all be doing exactly the same thing. Was it pretty good? Watching that thing, it was, like, process, it was yeah. like watching evolution in, in, like, <laughs> in high speed, you know, in, in uh, high motion, because you'd see, you'd see a little cluster of like motion over here, mm. emerging in the back, and another one over here, and this one's growing faster than that one. And then this one meets that one, and it takes it over. Oh my God! And then, you know, that kind of thing. You can come watch it all happening very, very quickly. It was pretty great. That it seemed like okay. There's a, a metaphor for a lot of uh, bio, well, biological phenomena and cellular phenomena, but happening yeah. with human beings in a kind of move, movement and creative social mm -hmm. thing. Did that lead to any work by you? You mentioned that as an inspiration. Um, it did make me think, I didn't try to do anything just like that, but I thought kind of a emergence, that kind of idea. A mm -hmm. couple of simple rules, and you can get something really, right. that is, you don't know where it came from. Right. It's incredibly comp complex, mm -hmm. and you only set a few simple rules in motion. 
So Brian does a lot of generative music and now generative paintings sort of based on some of that concept. Are you doing generative work that has that quality? Of a few rules and then you let it loose? Not so much, mm -hmm. no. Um, Eve <laughs> herself asked. Are you the Gospel of Eve? <laughs> gospel. You know, I was sitting here with Kevin Kelly, who was a hardover Christian, and I was sort of saying, Are you about this? And he said, No. So, what's the Gospel of Eve? I don't know, it's missing. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we entirely sure you didn't just make up that? Because you can make up anything that's yes, missing. Yes, I could have made right? up anything. I could have made up anything. And <laughs> Who would, who, who would say, oh, no, 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 that's going too far. <laughs> so Eve says, uh, in beautiful, clear writing, is there any, <laughs> is anything that would be beneficial to forget? And in a sense, you know, do that, but also looking at, just in sort of the current context, with everything that, once it becomes digital, sort of, doesn't disappear the way it used to. And um, is the, are the things that you consider will be beneficial to forget, that's the filter that should be applied. And what is the actual way that things can be forgotten now? Now it's one of the functions of fashion is to constantly say, pay no attention to that because that was last year. Now this year we're all mm -hmm. paying attention to X. And fashion is constantly trying to bury things. But is that the only way things get buried? Uh, what came to mind was one of the things I didn't mention, which was uh, in the, I guess the Renaissance, it was, it became fashionable to portray the previous centuries as being the Dark Ages. Ah. And that the idea of, uh, was put forward that, no, we're, Civilization had, quote, fallen asleep, and we were going to look back to the classics, Greek and Roman, mm -hmm. and that was going to be our inspiration. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to leapfrog, and then mm -hmm. we're going to build on that. Um, hmm. My own thought was, okay, fine, but that's, in certain ways, it, it might be better to forget ideas like that and have a more open mind and look at what happened during the medieval and gothic era and go, mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't, don't place a value judgment on it. Mm -hmm. It was a different way of looking at things, a different way of rendering images and thinking and being. It, it's wrong to maybe put a value judgment on it and that's what you should forget. Mm -hmm. I think we end with a, well, the question about your process. Um, you're incredibly prolific. You do a wide range of things seemingly simultaneously because uh, not tracking your every movement. Uh, and our, our most recent speaker, Ian McCune, I got sort of going on what does it take for him to get from novel to novel and how long does it take and what's his expectation of uh, as he goes into it, how long is it going to take and things like that. Do you have any kind of a process that you now notice works for you on how you move from project to project, how you sort of foster ideas that are cooking in your mind 
um, how do you decide what to do next and after that? How do you manage your creativity? Hmm. Uh, yeah, it obviously it has to be selective. There's, there's mm -hmm. too many things that are mm -hmm. interesting that seems like, oh, that would be a, a really exciting thing to be doing, but you can't do them all. Can't uh, do them all. Can't so do then them all. You have to, make a, have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. um, some things maybe get chosen because you feel like, I think I know how to do that. I can see where that's going to go. Ah. Uh, maybe you have a hint that way. And sometimes maybe the exact opposite. You go, I'm incredibly drawn to this, but I have no idea where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And that might be the reason. I, um, wow. It's so you trust in a sense your curiosity and your that looks interesting and you've learned to finesse that in some fashion so it leads you to things that you feel good doing and feel good having done. Yeah, and it's uh, I mean I'm I'm lucky enough that I've managed to not get stuck in a rut in a way, um, mm -hmm. not get too pigeonholed so I can do what I've done tonight. Is that a choice you made at some point, or is that just built in, do you think? I think there might have been a choice at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw other people who uh -huh. were kind of doing that, and I thought, that's, that's the way to do this. Mm -hmm. And then you, have, you, have, you can keep more options open. Thank you all. Thank you. Keep Thank up you. the fantastic work. <laughs> Thank you, sir. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.